When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast for Tuesday, September 27th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior, our last episode as a pairing for this season. So we figured today would be a good day to share some of our 2022 takeaways. Now, there could be full episodes and future episodes on these topics that go into greater detail, but some of the things that we are are starting to account for as we look forward. What what did this season bring that helps us kind of shape our understanding of what we expect the 2023 season to be like? So a lot of ground to cover and actually a lot of different ways this conversation might go just based on how uh, how broad our rundown is for today. But Al, when I think back on this season, I think one of my kind of memories of 2022 will be how aggressive Major League teams were in promoting young players. We know there were some rule changes to help incentivize players getting to the big leagues a bit faster to counteract the service time manipulation that's been happening for what feels like 15 to 20 years now. And some of that appears to have worked. It's not even just getting some of the best players in the game to debut on opening day rosters, but it's even things like Michael Harris coming up to the big leagues with very little experience, even at the double A level, Vaughn Grissom coming up in the same organization um, with even less experience at the big leagues. So I think when we look at this rookie class, like it, it's a standout group, but I'm also wondering how much the behavior of teams changes going forward how much of it was unique to this group of players and how much of it was actually a sign of things to come as we try and think about how much we value prospects in redraft leagues in the future yeah well uh that is the thing the trend that really stands out as new because we're going to be talking about some other things in terms of uh steals and, and saves uh but yeah this is the thing that's really new this year like you said because of the the rule changes and i was really skeptical that was going to make this much of a difference and the thing that really kind of hammered that home for me were the really late call-ups, uh, particularly Corbin Carroll, Gunnar Henderson, and Josh Young. Those are three players. I mean, Young's a little bit of a different case, obviously, because of missing almost the entire season. But I did not expect to see any of those three, especially since none of the, none of the three, with the possible exception of Henderson, is playing on a contender. And I didn't really expect the Orioles to you know to act like a contender that was pulling out all the stops and you know calling up their best prospect with a few weeks left to go in the season those were really really surprising moves so given that you can't explain it in terms of oh well this is a special case where here's a team that was going to really just you know put in all their chips for for a postseason run it does seem like it's something that is going to be a foreshadowing of of seasons to come yeah, and I think these late season call-ups in in some ways could be a way of an organization looking at a future big leaguer and trying to make a better call on the start of the following season. It's getting a, a peek at where that player at 
player is at from a development perspective. In the case of Henderson and Carroll especially, you, you, know, you look at those numbers, they've done everything they could in these late season call-ups to show that they are ready for opening day 2023. So I think they would be pretty safe, generally speaking, as far as players I would rely on for a full season's worth of opportunities as long as they don't go into a prolonged slump. I mean, we're still at a point with all these young players where a one-month slump can get you sent back to the minors next season. That could absolutely happen. But I'm wondering if we're going to see in future years or in other instances maybe of of prospects that weren't elite of the elite, but guys who are getting that late-season taste, maybe Ezekiel Tovar fits into this conversation where if even for eight games or 10 games or 12 games, a player looks overmatched if that gets held against them and they end up staying off the opening day roster the following season because teams want to be a little more careful as a result of that. So I'm, I'm just curious to see if it ends up cutting both ways. But I think at least in the case of, of Henderson and Carroll, they look like they're going to be full season players for us next season, just based on how they've more than held their own so far. And, you know, we have a lot of fun with leaderboards on this show. I pulled up all the rookie hitters over at Fangraphs and, and cut off the the playing time at 50 plate appearances just to account for some of the late, late season promotions. 128 position players have reached 50 plate appearances with just over a week to go in this season. And it's pretty remarkable for these rookies. 43 rookies have been league average or better by WRC+. And keep in mind that Rookie encompasses players that are not even necessarily prospects, guys who are a bit older, who are just playing in the big leagues for the first time that might be 24, 25, 26, or even older. You know, you look at Joey Manessis. He's a rookie. He is playing really well. He's got a 158 WRC+. plus. He's a whole other kind of problem for us to solve and, and a whole different player type for us to, to really examine. Uh, but it seems like this group as a whole is having a good bit of success. And I would also say that being league average or better right away as a rookie doesn't necessarily mean that you will be good in the long run. Failing to do that doesn't mean you'll be bad in the long run because other players are very close to that range. You know, we're seeing O'Neill Cruz with a 98 WRC plus. To me, that's not failure. There's power, there's speed. He's doing all the all the things we'd expect for a player with those tools. Riley Green has stayed in the big leagues since coming off of the IL with that foot injury. He's been up for 84 games, 97 WRC plus. So you look at those seasons, Jeremy Pena, who got up to a great start, dealt with some injuries, a tick below league average at 95 for WRC+. Like Those guys don't even count as part of that group of, of 43, and yet I would look at them as very solid players going into next season based on how I expect them to be used by their respective clubs. Yeah, and uh, when you do look at some of the players that are included in in that list, uh, you know we got the the obvious candidates like Pena, somebody who was on the Astros opening day roster, you know, Adley Rutschman, uh, Julio Rodriguez. You already mentioned Michael Harris, not somebody we necessarily would have expected uh, back in April to be uh, near a, a rookie leaderboard, near the top rookie leaderboard. But you know there he is. But then there's you know other names that are pretty high up. Stephen Kwan. Granted, we did talk a lot about Kwan the first couple of weeks of the season but i really i think i underestimated him because once he started to slump a little bit i thought okay well you know if he's not going to hit for average there's really nothing else there but he's he's hung in there and also uh you know provided some defensive value uh that will you know, uh, I think keep him in the lineup with, uh, you know, with the offensive struggles that he could have uh, in the sophomore season. Uh, Jake McCarthy, who uh, has played a lot in the second half and 
has 19 bases and perhaps still counting. So, uh, you know, there's players that we didn't necessarily even really have on our radar that radar that much um, back in, in uh, March and April and in May and uh, Oscar Gonzalez. I'm just like looking at a leaderboard here and picking out a lot of names that have made themselves relevant as rookies that we weren't thinking about uh, early on this season. And that's in addition to you know, all the players that you did mention. Yeah, and of course, the the stars, future stars, we expected to see a lot of this year. Bobby Witt Jr., who I've taken the L on before. I, I, I just didn't think he'd do enough in year one to justify the high ADP. I think he did, even, even with some of those flaws present. I mean, a 20-homer, 20 28-steal season with a little more than a week to go. It's a great rookie campaign. Plays every day. You know, talking about a guy that hit 257, so he held his own in the batting average category. OBP is a little bit low, but I would expect that as he gets more experience in the big leagues, much like with Michael Harris, we're going to see both of those guys increase their walk rates and become even better all-around players than they've been to this point. And they've been very good even with those limitations. And I think, you know, Julio Rodriguez, he looks like a superstar as well. You can pick nits in any one of these profiles. Rodriguez maybe strikes out a little more than you'd like, but he's so young for a guy in his rookie campaign. Like I I would not worry about that if you see him carrying a first round ADP. I actually think he kind of belongs there in 2023. Uh, we've talked about Harris as maybe one of the most difficult players to figure out just because he moved so quickly. I get that, but I, I think we're going to see him probably within the top 40 picks ADP wise going the next season because of that power speed combo. Harris is a homer and a steal away from a 2020 season as a rookie. And he's going to do it in about 115 games, which is remarkable. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, you know, that's the, the really cool thing about this trend that we're talking about, because it provided these opportunities that probably wouldn't have been there otherwise, probably wouldn't have been there without the the rule changes. Uh, Harris, uh, you know, who knows when and if he might have come up and uh, the, the players who came up even later. One name that, you know, neither of us have mentioned yet, uh, Vinny Pesquintino. Uh, early on, not somebody that we were talking about as a, an impact rookie, and then he, you know, put up minor league numbers that not only you know forced the issue for us to to be interested in coming up, but he was kind of a uh, an obsession of ours <laughs> for what seemed like weeks on end. And then he's come up, and I'm looking at the current stats that Pasquantino's put up: 12.4 percent strikeout rate and 11.6 percent walk rate. I mean, he's just a little less power, but otherwise replicating what he did from from level to level in the minors. And would he have come up uh, a year ago with, with those rules? I, I kind of doubt it. Yeah, that one, he's a little trickier just because I think as a a first base prospect, we've talked about how, how high the threshold is to even be considered a prospect at the position. You have to hit a ton to actually get attention maybe he's the kind of guy we would have seen anyway. Maybe. But the fact that he has been this good from a plate skills perspective is extremely encouraging. 258 plate appearances, so a little less than a half season's worth of games from him. He missed some time in the second half with an injury. Do you think we've seen enough from Pasquantino, and maybe this is unique to a player with his skill set, to believe in that strike zone judgment holding up? Has he had enough time in the big leagues where the league could try and adjust to him yet? Because everyone everyone used to talk about the sophomore slump. Whether you believed it or not, that was a term we heard a lot more 
10 plus years ago. I think it's sort of fading away, which it should because it's kind of absurd. But really what that is, is just players having to make adjustments. Guys come up, the league figures them out, the league does something different, and to varying levels of ability, players counter adjust to what is now happening to them, and then they reach their eventual kind of true baseline for the beginning part of their career. So how do you navigate that with Pasquantino, given the unique circumstances of him being a little bit older than some of the elite of the elite prospects and for having such great strike zone judgment really everywhere he's played? You know, I can't think of an example of a player who has had as many plate appearances as Pasquantino has had, done as well as he's had, and really slump in his second season. I There are examples, and I can't actually think of the specific ones now, but I know there are, are examples of players who would have played a little less than that, like maybe came up in, in August or September. And uh, I mean, to give a fairly recent example, Aristides Aquino, who had that one incredible August, uh, had to make those adjustments actually even in his first call up um, into September and then just never really recovered until a, a fairly good stretch really recently. But um, I can think of examples of that. But in terms of a player who's actually played as much as Pasquantino has, I'm sure there are examples. I just can't think of them, but I, I feel like it's a large enough, uh, it's a large enough sample of plate appearances that just reinforces what we are, were already. I won't say expecting because I think that's too strong of a word, but you know, hoping for, you know, optimistically hoping for from Pasquantino based on what he did so consistently from level to level in the minor leagues that I, I'm not going to discount him next year. If anything, I think we're going to see more of the power. Because uh, right now he's got a 170 ISO, and that is the thing that's really off what he did in the minors. But he's hitting the ball really hard. So I think maybe he's gotten a little cheated on the power stats so far. And I think between maybe just some uh, statistical uh, fluctuation and and just the learning that he's doing right now that I actually expect him to be a better hitter next year. Yeah, I get the sense, I mean, for Pasquatino, he's probably going to end up as a top 10 first baseman for me going into next season. That's roughly where I expect him to go. I need to keep shaping those 2023 rankings. The first draft of those is already in progress. Mentioned before, that is that is one of my illnesses. I, I'm always <laughs> trying to rank players for the long haul. And uh, with Pasquantino, I, I pulled back to a leaderboard that goes to 2010. So all rookie seasons with 200 or more plate appearances going back to 2010. And Vinny Pascantino, just looking for some statistical comps. More than 30% better than league average. There's a bunch of guys that have done that. He's one of 40 players that have posted a 134 plus, 134 WRC plus or better as a rookie with that much playing time since 2010. So wow. it's not extremely rare, but it, it you know it's it's good company to be in. And we're talking about a group of 687 total players that have met this criteria since 2010. What I really don't see a lot of, as I look for players who who actually have power, I don't see guys that have a double-digit walk rate and a K rate as low as Frank Schwindel. The closest players from like a broad comp for as hitters go, you'd see like Carlos Correa, who was running a bit when he was younger. He was this type of hitter when he first broke into the league. Chris Bryant was similar in terms of WRC+, plus, but he struck out more than 30% of the time as a rookie. Pasquantino's at 12.4%. So you go up and down this list. Jeff McNeil didn't strike out. Pasquantino's not like Jeff McNeil. He's got a lot more power than than McNeil does. You keep going up this list, and you just you don't necessarily have a player who's done this before. And that's really exciting to see 
in this environment especially where strikeouts are very high, to see a guy striking out as little as Frank Schwindel does with the ability to do some damage. So I do think we've got a unique player on our hands in that case and in many other cases here. Um, I'll give you the, a couple guesses at this one. Since 2010... DR, I, 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 before we get to that, you mentioned Schwindel a couple of times. You're making a comparison or... Oh, the Frank Schwindel was only mentioned just because it's it's weird that he pops on these leaderboards too given that he was DFA'd before the end of his second season, right? Yeah. A 141 WRC plus, 15% K rate, 5.8% walk rate. This is where the Joey Manessis concern would come from, is that we've seen a player who's very old come up, produce in you know a partial season, absolutely earn the opportunity to play every day to begin the next season, but you just don't know if that was enough time for the league to find the flaws of that player. And I, I worry we're seeing that from Manessis, or we could see it from him, even though his rookie season has been even better than Frank Schwindel's was. There's been more to it. It's actually the yeah. seventh best WRC plus we've ever seen from a rookie, if you're counting just back to 20, 2010. Yeah, well, that... Uh... You know, that definitely puts it in the proper perspective. And I think that, yeah, Schwindel is a, when I was saying I couldn't think of an example of a player who got a fair amount of playing time and then really fell off. Uh, Schwindel is a great example of that. And, you know, the, the warning signs were there. That's, I think, where you can make a distinction between him and Pasquantino uh, and, and maybe Manessas too, to, to some extent. Yeah, the other name that's on here that I'm trying to, I'm looking back at his old stats is, is Jesus Guzman. When Jesus Guzman got his first prolonged opportunity. He was 27 years old. It was 76 games in 2011. He had played in the big leagues very briefly before that, just 20 plate appearances way back in, in 2009. But he came up, hit 312, 369 OBP, 478 slugging percentage. Never really replicated that. Never really had the chance to be an everyday player. He was just kind of he was clearly cast as a part-time player. So I think there's another sort of rare player that did it, but then didn't get a lot of opportunities around it. Uh, Keston Hira's had a kind of a strange career to this point. I mean, it's been, I would say, a, a pretty significant bust for him after an impressive debut. We'll see if he's able to turn things around. Jose Martinez pops in this leaderboard as someone that we thought would be really good and didn't stick around with a role, even though it was clearly like a bat first sort of profile. He's one of those guys that I think ended up disappointing a lot of us in the long run. Jarrett Parker, but he did it with a high K rate, so I think people could see the warning signs with Parker, even though he did walk a lot and it did show decent power as a kind of a regular at the end of his rookie campaign. So some some fun names on that leaderboard. Easy easy leaderboard to replicate over at Fangraphs, but I think the the main takeaway for me is that a lot of these rookie performances actually stand out when you compare them to other recent rookie performances, like Harris has looked great. Julio Rodriguez has looked great and it stands up really well against similar situations that we can look at for the last dozen years. You know, when you mentioned a player like Jarrett Parker, uh, it's kind of verging on remembering some guys territory. I, I think mm-hmm. that's a, I think I forgot both him and Jarrett Parker, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's what time does. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, some other observations for, for this season. Saves continue to be spread around, and I say continue because this is not new. 16 relievers, as of today, have 20 or more saves so far this season. There's a good shot. We'll see another handful get there in the final week, and we'll end up with a similar total of 20 save players to last year. We had 19 last year. If this holds, 16 will be the lowest for a non-shortened season since 1991. And we're in rule change season right now. So now we've got a couple years of teams managing their bullpens in this manner. Are you at a point, if you weren't there already, where you are pushing leagues to make a switch to saves plus holds or to make some other sort of tactical adjustment to offset the way that saves are distributed? I've kind of made that made that move to wanting leagues to adjust to a new metric um, to kind of going back <laughs> uh, because I, and I really, I think there's got to be a third way that's, that's better than, than saves or saves plus holds because for a couple of seasons, I was very big on leagues converting to saves plus holds and, and actually went a little bit out of my way to, to join those leagues. And I found it wasn't, it, it, I know it wasn't fun enough. Like it was, it was a little too easy to, to pick up holds guys there, there wasn't enough scarcity. So uh, I'd actually rather have it where you have a, a dwindling stat like saves, you know, dwindling in the sense of the number of compilers that are actually out there. And I'd rather deal with that scarcity and also the arbitrariness of manager decisions um, that, that helped to, to create those stats uh, than to really flatten the playing field with a stat like saves plus holds. So I almost feel like we've got to completely rethink pitcher roto stats um, by getting rid of wins and saves and trying to think of other ways to reward um, to reward pitching. And I almost, uh, you know, wonder if we should get rid of strikeouts too, because one of my things that I've kind of, you know, railed against is how pitchers who are very good, what I used to think of as, you know, the Kyle Hendricks type pitchers who get, you know, penalized for being really successful by having more success on on uh, on balls in play or the the quality of contact, so I just feel like the whole thing needs to be rethought. And I'm I haven't done that thinking, at least not well enough. But <laughs> until then, I think I'd actually just rather be in a straight up saves league. Yeah, I mean, I think proponents of keeping it as it is would say it at least creates this unique challenge in the pool. When are you going to get your saves? How much of a premium are you willing to pay? And of course, we saw, I think, the most expensive closers of all time in draft season in 2022. I talked about being willing to pay that tax for a while and then sort of hitting this point in in March where I felt like it ticked up just to the level where it was it was at the breaking point for me. Like I couldn't do it. The opportunity cost was just too great because we we were basically cracking the top 30 overall, top 40 overall consistently. And for the very top closer to go up against top 20 type hitters, I just thought there was too much value being 
given away and then taking chances either on second, third, fourth tier closers seemed more appealing to me with the overall way rosters would come together. So, you know, you do keep that aspect of it. I wonder if there's going to be any sort of adjustment made by the fantasy community in the wake of how this season unfolded for some of the elite closers. It wasn't, I don't think it was a terrible year for closers because Edwin Diaz has put together a a fantastic season. You know, Hader, Josh Hader's been a, a really good example of, well, you can pay the premium for closers and you're not always going to get what you think you're going to get from them. That's, that's, that's a lingering concern. And even Edwin Diaz himself had this happen a few seasons ago where he, he didn't have the dominant ratios you'd expect for someone who is as good as he is. And I think some of that's just statistical variance of guys that pitch 60-ish innings in a season. Exactly. That that can't be avoided. And I think no matter what metric you wind up resorting to, um, yeah, there's going to be, be variation there. I thought I was getting a tremendous bargain on Taylor Rogers in lots of leagues this year. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it's a case where a lot of his metrics were perfectly fine, but it's just, you know, Babbitt variance and strand rate and uh, th- there's less time, obviously, for that to iron out for, for relievers who, you know, maybe are, are going to toss 60, 65 innings in a season. So th- you have to have a certain amount of tolerance for uh, for risk with closers um, or relievers in general. But um, yeah, I just, I'm just n- not as enamored of uh, saves and holds as I was a couple years ago. Yeah, I've railed against holds as a stat that I just don't like. So if you have a problem with saves, like why would you, why would you add a stat that you don't really think is a good stat to to fix it but at the same time like I I do see the impact it has on the pool it does at least remove the hyperinflation that you see on closers I I think that's the that's the best argument for it is that it it has its intended effect If, if you're trying to just knock down the value of the elite relievers enough to where you're not drafting these highly volatile players that can just mysteriously underperform because of things that are seemingly out of their control. I mean, how I, I think we could have a pretty long debate about how much how much control a pitcher really has over his home run rate. But that to me is like the biggest issue with Josh Hader this year is his home run rate's really high. 1.55 homers per nine. I would say the same is true from Taylor Rogers. 1.03 homers per nine isn't even off the charts bad. He's got a 60.9% left on base percentage. At a glance, if you only look at the skills, Taylor Rogers skills look fine. Yep. So at at what point did you make a mistake? And at what point are you just really unlucky? This to me seems like a case where you'd have been very unlucky if you were in on Taylor Rogers this season. Well, as somebody who drafted him in many, many leagues, uh, <laughs> I do feel <laughs> like it's it's bad luck. And I didn't get hater anywhere, but for those who got hater, I feel like it's it's a little bit of bad luck. Um and different managers may have handled those situations differently. I mean, I understand those are you know both pitchers that played uh, on two teams this year, but um, you know, on a third different team for either one of them, they might have uh, gotten more of a chance uh, to, to work things out. I mean, Hater ultimately did get that chance, but uh, yeah, there's just there's just so much there that's kind of random. But I still think, and I've seen a lot of people argue against saves just because so much of it is up to the manager. And it's it's a really imperfect competition to try to win. But I think there's a there's a little bit of fun in that and trying to, you know, see if you can can read the tea leaves and 
you know, see if you think Josh Hader is going to get a second chance or, you know, incorrectly guess that Taylor Rogers is going to get another chance. Uh, so, you know, that, that's all a part of it too. I'm willing to deal with the imperfectness of it because I, I have yet to find the reliever metric in, in a fantasy context. That's, that's anywhere close to, to perfect. Yeah. I wonder if we could do something, if, if there was a scoreless inning in the seventh inning or later of a game that is either tied or close, if there's some, some little calculation, if we can invent a new stat that is a little bit like a save and a little bit like a hold, but maybe like a good happy medium between them. I'm sure people have done this or tried this and I'm sorry if I'm overlooking something that's been out there or been written or been discussed, but I I just think there's there's probably a better way. Like save plus holds is a good concept. It's a good starting point. We're, we're at least thinking about valuing a greater number of high quality relievers, but let's just make sure we're getting it right because it's pretty easy to get a hold. So that's all I'm looking for. Uh, I've gone from pushing hard against saves plus holds to the point of, while I might not be the person who suggests the rule or implements the rule if I'm the commissioner, I'm not going to vote it down and, and fight with everybody about it anymore. I think in the past that would have been more in line with just wanting to preserve the saves only. Now I'm kind of just like, fine, just just tell me the rules and I'll figure it out and deal with it and, and make the necessary adjustments. Maybe that's not a strong enough opinion to have as as someone who's on a, a podcast on a pretty regular basis. But saves continue to be spread around much like they were a season ago and perhaps we'll see it turns out just a little bit worse than last year was. Let's take a look at this question. How much do you trust the 2022 power environment as the groundwork for 2023? Because we have humidors in all 30 parks. We have a different baseball. The power is down around the league, especially opposite field power, as we learned earlier this season. And you have to consider it this way. Last season, there were 102 players that finished the year with 20 or more home runs. Back in 2019, the year of the rabbit ball, an all-time record of 129 players did it. This year, we are sitting at 67 players with 20-plus homers on September 26th. That's with 10 team games left for most teams, even less for a few. So there are 18 players who begin this week within three homers of 20. And if they all... If they all hit enough home runs to get to 20, we'd get to 85 players, which is still a big drop. That's 17 fewer than we had last year. Most likely, all those guys are not going to hit three-plus homers in what's left of the season. Is this the new power landscape? Are you comfortable modeling and planning for next year based on this ball with these humidor settings and with these sort of norms from this group of players? I'm not just because we've seen so much fluctuation the last few years, changes with the ball. I, I think that the the one thing that you mentioned that we should consider to be a, a, a meaningful part of the landscape going forward is the fact that all the, the parks have humidors. So I, I, I'm not expecting us to have another year of the rabbit ball, but uh, it's just been such a, a big decrease in power uh, that I would expect that Somehow next year, uh, <laughs> there, there's going to be some correction for that. And, the, you know, there's obviously two separate questions here, which is, you know, what do you think is going to happen in terms of the level of power? But then also, how does that affect players? Because you could just look at this and, and say, well, 
uh, you know, there be, there's going to be more or less home runs from one year to the next uh, overall, but does, does that, you know, rising or lowering tide affect everybody the same way? And I think what, what we see now that, you know, we have some distance from 2019, we could look back at some of those players that had 15, 20, 25 homer seasons that year. Uh, you mentioned Jeff McNeil before. I think that was a big year for him, relatively speaking for power. You had a lot of players like that, that were 15 to 20 homer guys that we likely won't see that from them again. Uh, but if we go the other way then, given that we've weeded out those kind of low to middling raw power guys as, as power sources, um, if, if, if I'm expecting some regression in the other direction next year, does that mean that there might be some some players that had down power years this year who could come back? And just looking at profiles of players who, because they, they did go to the opposite field more this year, um, that they're... they're Fly ball tendencies weren't rewarded the way they are in the past. Jake Cronenworth strikes me as a player who maybe could bounce back next year. But I was kind of surprised at how few players I looked at that looked like even with a different ball, a more power-friendly ball, uh, how few players I saw that that looked like candidates to really do noticeably better next year. And I think the other part of that is, you know, you might have gone through this season with an approach that you believed in an all field sort of power approach. And eventually over the course of the year, you knew if you were going the other way, you probably weren't hitting a home run. So maybe you tweaked your swing a little bit or took a different type of swing on pitches that were were outside, for example. But if you're going to completely overhaul something and try to become more pull happy, you're probably more likely to do that in an off season than you are on the fly because that might require some setup mechanics that are different that you might not want to unveil in the middle of a season. So I do think you could have some players that lost power, who had a different approach this year and years prior, who just change it up a lot. And they come back and, well, they, they can hit the ball hard when they when they pull it, and now they're going to pull it more than ever. We're going to see different sorts of adjustments like that. Um, but it's not just the power changes either. I mean, I think the the biggest thing when we think about next season that people have been talking about already are the rule changes that will likely increase teams' willingness to steal bases. The expectation is that stolen bases will be up. We have bigger bases. We have limitations on on throwing over. Those things should lead to more green lights. I think that's a fair assumption. How many more green lights is the debate that we're all going to have for the next six months and probably even into next season. Oh, maybe maybe we're going to see a lot more as the season goes along, as teams get better reads on all these situations. Maybe there's any number of ways this can, can take shape, but I think the general expectation is we will see more stolen bases attempted next season than we've seen in a long time at the big league level. And because of some restrictions on shifting, I would likely expect that ERAs and whips are going to go up too, right? We're going to have more batted balls that go in play that find gaps that turn into hits. That's going to work against pitchers. More runners on base and more stolen bases means ERAs are probably going to go up. So that's also going to look a little bit different in 2023 as we try to forecast what the future looks like. Yeah, and that's a, another one too where there's there's a second part to it because first you have to figure you know, what your expectation is overall of, of how those stats are going to change. And then who benefits, who, what, what batter benefits from having uh, a better chance to steal bases next year. And I, I can't even begin to at least top of mind throw out a name or two uh, of somebody who might be a, a sneaky steal source. I think maybe the thing is that I'm already 
kind of of reluctant in drafts to overpay for steals um, because I've had more luck just trying to cobble together on the fly than than what I have overpaid for it in the past. So maybe that's maybe that's a strategy that will pay off even more next year. So Eno wrote about this, and we talked about it a little bit on, on rates and barrels. And as the stolen base pool goes, one hypothesis that we, we both agreed on this was a player like Trey Turner or someone who typically is among the league leaders in stolen bases. They're so fast and so good at stealing bases that the number of times, the percentage of times they take off when they can is already very high. They've already come close to maximizing their opportunities. So while they'll probably have a few more opportunities where it makes sense to run, compared to some guys who are closer to the cutoff, the no, the go, no-go sort of cutoff based on the calculation of how much time they have to get from first to second, there might be a greater percentage of stolen base opportunities available for those players, the very efficient 8, 10, 12, 15 steal players that always seem to check in in that range. If you go 8 for 10 as a base stealer, there are probably a lot of opportunities from just a pure numbers perspective, where you were on first or second base and the math just wasn't quite right for you to go because you're a good runner, but you're not an elite runner. And now you might have more of those opportunities where you get the green light because you already are on base enough, but it's just a matter of that that number, that time lining up just right with your speed for your team to want you to run. So does that even make sense? Is that something that you think is a, a worthwhile hypothesis? Is, is, that fits into the player type that you're already going after. And that's sort of the way I was trying to build teams this year anyway for a lot of reasons. Like One, I, I, I've started to come to this point where I didn't like losing a player expected to steal 25, 30, 35 bases because I always found that it was impossible to find a player that ran that much on the wire unless they had major skills flaws everywhere else. The only <laughs> players that had stolen base rates anywhere close to the players that run that much are usually like nine hitters that have either no power or they have some kind of major flaw that keeps them off the field. They only play against righties or they just they, they, nothing nothing else is right. They they lag in other categories most of the time. So that had previously pushed me more into this balanced approach with steals where I was hoping to get a handful of 10s and 15s in the core and then a lot of you know fives and sevens from the rest of my team. And that served me pretty well this year. And I think that group of players might be the group of players that actually picks up some added volume, a greater proportion of volume to their stolen base totals. I think that totally makes sense. And as you pointed out, if you're going to pursue that kind of strategy anyway, it's not like you're really taking on extra risk. These are players that, that you're targeting anyway. Uh, so I, you know, I guess the only other thing is uh, just to really be vigilant about uh, you know players that are uh, you know kind of quietly turning into stolen base sources. Like pe- people got. Really great, uh, you know, great bargains on John Birdie in in Fab this year, or you know, later on Bubba Thompson. I have one team that's that could move up three or four spots in steals in the the last week and a half here, um, and I was able to to pick up Nate Eaton for for two bucks over the weekend. So um, I'm saying that as an example. I've not been particularly good at that this season. I don't have Birdie or Thompson anywhere, or anybody else that would fit that description, but. Um, you know, I think that's even if the environment changes a little bit, I, I think that's always a, a good thing to be really vigilant about. So we started the conversation talking about rookies, focusing on on rookie hitters. We should talk about rookie pitchers for a bit too. 
I started to have more confidence in rookie pitchers last season, 2021. And the main reason for it is I think we have, we've reached this point with how teams utilize technology where I think they have a better sense for when a pitcher is big league ready than when a hitter is big league ready. This year made that a little harder because of all the aggressive promotions we saw with the position players. But I think from a a pure modeling standpoint, when you look at spin rates and movement on pitches and velocity, the characteristics, the fine-tuned characteristics of, of major league pitches, I think you can feel better about someone being capable of having success in the big leagues because it's easier to compare apples to apples with pitches. I think they can actually, the, the conditions are so similar in which the pitches are thrown that you can more confidently forge ahead and say, we think Spencer Strider is, is ready for a rotation spot. We can move him quickly level to level like that. That checks out more in my mind. George Kirby had exceptional command. So for me, that was the kind of thing that I felt good that that was going to translate all season and that he was going to be other than innings management problems, he was going to be, I think, a really high-floor rookie pitcher. So I, I had a handful of guys that I thought made a lot of sense this year. And it, was, it wasn't it was all success. I mean, I think Aaron Ashby had a couple of injuries. I had really high expectations for him. Coming out of spring training, I thought Mackenzie Gore was going to be great. And I don't know if he, if he hit a wall or if the league started to solve him. So it wasn't just this perfectly executed strategy. I loved Reed Detmers. I think we've talked about him on the show a few times where... I absorbed all the bad and only got back some of the good in a few leagues when he came back up with that slider and, and started to pitch as well as he's pitched in the second half of this season. So I'm interested in your takeaways from you know this class of rookie pitchers and just how you feel about a rookie pitcher compared to a rookie position player in general, given where the game's at right now. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think I, I feel pretty similarly in that you mentioned there a number of really good, uh, rookie pitchers this year and a, a couple that were really, um, you know, we had very high expectations of early on who, um, got, you know, got off to sort of rough starts, Nick Lodolo and, and Hunter Green, uh, and Green in particular, maybe there's going to be some sneaky value there, um, because I think the the really good performance late in the season, maybe as as you know, typically happens. Um, you know, uh, when a, a lot of your league mates may check out in, in August and September, uh, maybe that that goes less noticed than than it should. Um, so I think there might be a, more of a bounty there than um, that might be a, a apparent at a, at a first glance. Uh, you know, because both of those pitchers, their overall stat, stats are definitely you know skewed in a in a, in a bad direction because of their earlier struggles. But um, I, yeah, there's, there's nobody in particular that I think is a candidate to be uh, you know, to be, to have a sophomore slump or uh, that there was any kind of, um, you know, smoke and mirrors with the performance that they had this year. Um, so in, in Ashby is somebody I, I too had some uh, high expectations for, and I think he could be the sort of pitcher that, that really breaks out in his uh, second full season. Yeah, I still think there's there's a lot there to like with Ashby as long as he can put these injuries behind him. I think the the pitch mix is good. I think the the swings he gets, guys just don't look particularly comfortable against him most of the time. So it's probably some combination of a, a lower walk rate and a lower home run rate that helps him uh, take those steps forward in 2023. I'd still be in on him for sure. 
Uh, I think Rowanzi Contreras with fewer innings restrictions will be interesting next year. They were careful with his in-start workloads even at AAA this year, so I still wouldn't expect him to get 150 innings where he's just going 5-plus every single time. I think that that might be expecting a little too much. It might be more like 130, and it might be still with some rest around the All-Star break, and I, I just think you have to account for for that given how unusual the usage was this year. Uh, but I do think as you look at, at Hunter Green, and I think Nick Lodolo is the other one. It's, it's Lodolo, Green, Ashby. Those three guys all showed a lot. And in smaller samples, we've seen some guys at the end of the year who've looked really good too. Hayden Wesneski looks like a great pickup by the Cubs. A very clear path to what should be a safe spot in that rotation. The NL Central is a good place to pitch. Wrigley Field is generally a good home park. And the skills kind of across the board... I think have have looked excellent in the brief time that we've seen him. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about the the Diamondbacks pitchers on the waiver show. I think just the first looks at, at Dre Jameson and Ryan Nelson have me really excited about what they could do over a full season as well. And I just think it's easier for me to make a decision on those guys, those last three guys especially, despite very limited time in the big leagues because of, of a lot of different things that we have at our disposal. Eno's pitching model is part of that too, because it, you know you get three starts from somebody and you have a really good feel for how the quality of their pitches, the location of their pitches, how that stacks up to the player pool at large. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I want to go back to, to Spencer Strider because I don't think you can you can oversell uh, the idea that he probably has won people some leagues this year, and uh, you know think about who. Who could be the next Spencer Strider? Because he was not somebody that we were talking about a year ago. And he, you know, just had a, a phenomenal season, really a, a standout among among rookie pitchers. And one one name that comes to mind, I think he's not nearly as uh, off the radar as, as Strider was this time last year, but somebody we've talked about a lot uh, on recent episodes, Cody Morris. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he's somebody who could really, uh, if he stays healthy, uh, really explode onto the fancy radar next year. Yeah, I think Morris would make a lot of sense. I mean, you could t- you could spin that yarn for any Cleveland pitcher. You could say <laughs> it for Cody Morris. You could say it for Daniel Espino. You could say it for Tanner Bibby. Um, you could say it for Gavin Williams. And I, I'm just kind of like nodding along. Sure, yeah, that that all <laughs> makes sense. Like it's some. Some combination of those guys will almost certainly have rotation spots all season long, and they've had Tristan McKenzie pitch really well. Shane Bieber isn't the same Bieber he was before the injury, but he's also still very good. Maybe they trade Bieber this offseason because that's sort of their style, to take a player that is getting more expensive and trade from an area of strength to get maybe one more bat. You know, We'll see what happens with them down the stretch and in the postseason. I think they're they're a fun team right now. I've I've counted them out and overlooked them at almost every single turn this year, even though I really like the young talent that they haven't brought up to the big leagues yet. So I was more optimistic about them for 2023 and 2024 than I was for this season, as recently as like two weeks ago. I'm oh, yeah. fully admitting how stupid and wrong I was about the Guardians this year. Uh, but I, I think there are, there are a few contenders for sure as you start looking for guys that could could fit that Spencer Strider role. Do you think it has to be someone who we've only seen either for a brief time this year or even someone that hasn't debuted yet, though? We can't have a a half season of someone who takes that Strider sort of leap and and compare it, can we? Uh, No, no, (laughs) that's that's definitely not fair. I feel like Morris is 
you know, really sort of pushing that a little bit because, you know, we've, we've gotten a good look at him uh, the last few weeks. But uh, it, just in terms of somebody who could get a lot of swings and misses and, and have a huge fantasy impact, that's what led me to, to toss his name out there. Uh, but in terms of thinking of, you know, pitchers that, that haven't, we haven't even seen yet, uh, I'm not sure who would, who would fit that bill because, if we look ahead to next year, I mean, Grayson Rodriguez is an, is an obvious name, but he's not going to, you know, surprise anybody <laughs> when he comes up. And if he's really good, I think the same probably is true for, uh, for Yuri Perez. Um, so, uh, I, I, yeah, DVR, I'm drawing a blank in terms of somebody who's in that sweet spot of, we really don't know much about him right now. And yet he's got that profile that suggests that he could have success like Strider uh, has had this year. Just another name to throw into this conversation. Another one in Arizona. We haven't seen him debut yet, but Brandon Fott, fifth rounder in 2020. He's moved to the big leagues really quickly, having a lot of success at AAA. I believe he leads the minor leagues in strikeouts. 218 total strikeouts this season, 167 innings, plenty of ability to miss bats. I, I wonder, I mean, high swing strike rates everywhere he's been. 16.4% at AA this year, 16.7% at AAA. That's the amazing thing about Spencer Strider's rookie season, and it's something that Keith Law brought up on the Athletic Baseball show at the end of last week was just that he changed his slider. His fastball was always electric. He fixed his slider during the offseason and had two just amazing pitches that teams couldn't figure out. The part of the Spencer Strider profile that's the most interesting is what if he does that for a third pitch? What if he adds something? I mean... Just because you add a slider doesn't mean you can get the feel for a changeup. It's a different kind of pitch. But the way we were talking about it on the, on the other show was just that it shows this this drive, this aptitude, this feel for, for learning something new. It can only be a good thing to have that ability. So if you look at Strider's numbers last year, how excited would you have really been about a guy if if we just forget what happened this year? How excited were people about a guy that had a 471 ERA and a 122 whip over 63 innings at AA? 94 strikeouts, that's great. Tons of strikeouts. We see guys like that. 10.9% walk rate. Okay, he strikes guys out, has a bit of a walks issue. Ratios, you know, ERA especially, not that great. Probably a good pitcher for 2023, but not necessarily a guy that we're going to want to rely on in 2022. Obviously, uh, uh, that turned out to be wrong, but that's probably about where I would have landed on Strider was... Yeah, maybe more of an up-and-down guy, maybe more of a glue guy for them. So it's just amazing, too, that players can change a lot in an offseason. So if you're looking for those ingredients, I think you are looking for the core skills of elite bat-missing ability, even out of like a very granular thing like swinging strike percentage. That could also be the difference. And it's another reminder, you have to look at the environment guys we're pitching in. I say it all the time, especially with the Arizona pitchers, those minor league environments play a couple of different extremes. So just be familiar with what it was like pitching where they spent most of their time pitching the previous year. Yeah, no, you can't emphasize that enough. Um, and that's why I actually had some, going back to Arizona, the one that actually I was uh, most interested in this year was, was Tommy Henry and he's you know gotten outshone by, uh, by Jamison and Nelson. Uh, but you know, I, I really discounted the, uh, the environment for him and, uh, you know, didn't didn't really work out in limited exposure uh, at, at the major league level. But just in general, uh, that is a very good piece of advice. How many 
how many drafted hold teams do you think you're going to have this year? You're going to have more in 2023. So that, is that something you're you're interested in? Uh, I, I'm going to be brutally honest here and say I did not have any this year. Um, okay, for well, the first I've, time hey. in a few years, so I could only have either more or the same <laughs> amount. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll give it a shot again uh, next year. I I have to admit, I mean, just I like the tinkering. I, um, mm. And by the way, I, I kind of I, I went right towards the middle because I also dropped out of Otnu, and so I didn't have daily lineup leagues uh, either. I missed that. I think I'd be more likely to go back to a, a daily lineup uh, situation than draft and hold. But we'll we'll see how I feel uh, on the other side of the offseason. I would not be opposed to draft and hold rosters getting bigger. Uh, I think I'll have a few more draft and holds going into 2023 than I had this year. I think I had three that I drafted because of the NFBC 50s. Those are those are nice because they're a smaller entry fee. That helps a lot. And they're, I believe, 12 teamers instead of 15 teamers if I get the formats right in my head. So that was... That was something that changed for me as well. But um, I do think all these these prospect pitchers that are close or debuting late in the year, I'm going to have a lot of those guys stacked up on my draft and hold teams. That's where a lot of my round 30, round 40 uh, range pitchers are, are going to be. It's going to be guys that I expect to see at least for a half season in the big leagues, if not for a full season, because uh, Spencer Strider was one of those uh, such picks for me in uh, my draft and hold that hopefully I'll end up winning this year. Still a little more than a week to go, but... You can uh, you can get away with some mistakes early when you land a player like that after round thirty. So it's fun to speculate. That's why I like that format so much. Love depth. Love taking chances on players like that. Uh, obviously, like I mentioned up top, each of these topics could be their own episode. They're going to come back around on on this show, on rates and barrels, on all the different podcasts, all the different stories you read on the Athletic. I'm sure we'll be pulling on these threads throughout the months ahead. Uh, it's been a blast hosting on Tuesdays and Fridays and Thursdays and every other day with you throughout the season, Al. And uh, we do have episodes of Under the Radar still coming up in this feed. We have got one this week and one next week before we go into off-season mode with this show. And uh, as we sign off, a reminder, you can find Al on Twitter at BB. You can find me at Derek and Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We are back on Wednesday with Under the Radar. Thank you.